Welcome all, my name is Marissa, and you are listening to the Shining Armor Podcast, a show hosted by a comic book newbie who likes Marvel comics and just wants to talk about Iron Man. Welcome to episode 7.1, our first bonus episode. These extra episodes, which I mentioned way back in the pilot, I have decided to cheekily designate as .1 episodes. These will be infrequent glances into Iron Man's place within the greater Marvel Universe, and will mostly cover important events or occurrences that he is involved with outside of his own title. These are specifically meant to cover events happening alongside events that are occurring in the main series. As I was planning this series, way back in November 2022, I thought it would do a great disservice if we didn't take a look at what our boy was getting up to outside of his own book every now and then. Every once in a while, it may seem that I'll mention an outside issue in a main episode if there isn't enough going on to warrant a full point one episode, but just enough for a mention, such as a brief tie-in appearance. But I will try to keep these kind of mentions to a minimum, if at all possible. In this point one episode, we're going to look at Iron Man's role as co-founder of the Avengers. That's right, we're finally here. We're going to briefly summarize the events of Avengers numbers 1 through 4, and more closely analyze Iron Man's place on the team, specifically, where he fits, his overall role on the team, and his capacity as a team player. He's pretty much been a lone wolf up until now, so let's see how he gets on when he has to work with a few of the other heavy hitters in the Marvel Universe. This is going to be a bit of a longer episode, folks, so I really hope you like the sound of my voice, or are at least used to hearing it by now. And also, let me know how you like the sound. Um, I'm using some new audio equipment for the very first time in this episode, so here's hoping it sounds great. As a brief disclaimer, just as with our main series, I'm reading from Marvel's Epic Collection line. In this case, Avengers Epic Collection Volume 1, Earth's Mightiest Heroes. If you are reading along and you have this collection, you can read along with me. Or as usual, you can find these issues on Marvel Unlimited if you are a subscriber there. So, with all that out of the way, let's get started. Part 1. Let's start a team. Issue discuss Avengers number 1, The Coming of the Avengers. are the Avengers. The cover of Avengers number one has become rather iconic, hasn't it? Our titular team of, as the cover boldly proclaims, Earth's mightiest superheroes staring down their foe ready to take him out. The foe in this case is totally spoiled by the cover, so I'm just gonna go ahead and say it. It's Loki. Yup. Good old Loki Laufeyson slash Odinson, god of mischief and lord of lies and Thor's adopted brother, who you may know from reading the Thunderer's own comic in the book currently at this point titled Journey into Mystery, another former anthology title repurposed to tell Thor stories just as Tales of Suspense was for Iron Man. Even if you've never read a Thor comic, you definitely still know the Marvel canon iteration of the infamous Norse trickster god from the Marvel Cinematic Universe as a breakout character masterfully portrayed by Tom Hiddleston. 
In a lovely bit of synergy between page and screen, Loki is also the villain responsible for the assembling of the Avengers in the team's landmark 2012 big screen debut. And I think that's just neat. We can't see Loki's face here, but based on the caption quote on the cover, you can bet he's scowling and grimacing at his adversaries as he scoffs. The Avengers. Bah! I'll destroy you all! The question, of course, is whether or not Loki really is a match for the combined forces of these heroes banded together. Our ragtag team of heroes in this inaugural issue consists of the following. Scientist and creator of the Pym Particle, Dr. Henry Pym, aka the Astonishing Ant-Man. Wealthy heiress and socialite, Janet Van Dyne, aka the Wonderful Wasp. Later on, she becomes a successful fashion designer, just for the record. The Incredible Hulk, who lives in the mind and body of Gamma Energy expert Dr. Robert Bruce Banner and comes out when he gets angry or endangered. The mighty Thor Odinson, God of Thunder and Lord of Lightning, who, in these early stories, hides in plain sight by striking the handle of his trusty hammer Mjolnir against the ground and swapping places with the civilian identity of a mild-mannered and physically handicapped GP named Dr. Donald Blake. Yes, you heard that right. Thor, of all people, had a secret identity. Don't worry, we'll get back to this. And of course, last, but definitely not least, our boy Anthony Stark, genius inventor slash engineer and CEO of the still unnamed Stark Industries in his guise as the armored hero and star of this podcast, the Invincible Iron Man. He's notably still in his original gold Model 2 armor, as you no doubt have noticed if you're reading along with me. He'll switch to the red and gold upgraded version in a few issues, hence the placement of this bonus episode, right after the notable armor upgrade. As a side note, I adore the superlative descriptors Marvel uses for their headliner heroes. The over-the-top flair really hypes them up as the appropriately awe-inspiring individuals their world rightfully views them as. If this starting lineup looks a little bit different than what you're used to, then join the club. If you, dear listener, are anything like I was at one point, and you only know of the adventures from the MCU, you might have a few questions. I know I certainly did, but we can talk a little more about the team composition later. Now that we've met our leading lads and lady, let's get to the story summary. The story is boldly titled, The Coming of the Avengers, in typical dramatic Marvel fashion, and is cover dated September 1963, with a release date of July 2nd, 1963. Is credited as written by Stan Lee, pencils by Jack Kirby, inks by Jake Ayers, and lettering by Sam Rosen. In the Marvel fandom wiki, it finally credits Stan Goldberg on colors, but since it isn't actually credited in the book, I can only take this with a grain of salt. The opening splash page is a dramatic profile of Loki, framed by a rocky cliffside and ocean behind him as he grimaces in contemplation. The story begins proper on the next page, where he rages and blames Thor for being exiled to the Isle of Silence, following a prior scuffle with his adopted brother. He credits Odin with banishing him, but 
Anyone who's read a Thor comic knows that if Loki just waits long enough, Odin will release him foolishly for him to go and do more mischief. The old fool doesn't learn. However, he is stuck here for the time being. So, to amuse himself and get back at Thor, he decides to raise a little hell. You know, as he does. Loki uses his thought projection to Loki, his brother. Thor is currently hidden away in the guise of lame Dr. Donald Blake. So, Loki decides to use a lure to bring Thor out into the open, and his preferred method of doing so involves creating a kerfuffle using the Hulk, who is just minding his own business as he does, and an illusion of a stick of dynamite seemingly about to destroy a set of rail tracks in the path of an oncoming train. The Hulk sees what he understandably thinks is real dynamite, and ends up destroying the tracks instead. And when he attempts to correct the error, the correction fails, leading to him just resorting to holding up the tracks. The train is saved by his quick thinking. Somehow, probably because the comics code wouldn't allow the realistic number of casualties from such an accident. But the Hulk is still blamed and shamed in the press as unfairly responsible for this near disaster. Only one person believes that the Hulk is innocent. Rick Jones, a teenager who Dr. Banner saved from the gamma explosion that turned him into the Hulk. Jones gathers his buddies in the teen brigade, apparently newly formed for this issue. Let me know if they ever appear anywhere outside the first 10 issues of this book, because I've never seen them anywhere else. And they collectively decide to contact the Fantastic Four to help deal with the Hulk. They send out a CB radio signal that Loki subsequently diverts, because darned if the FF are going to ruin his fun. And besides, he only wants to learn Thor and no one else. The signal is diverted to the office of Dr. Blake, who, even though it wasn't originally meant for him, knows that something needs to be done and decides to act anyway, striking his cane and becoming the mighty Thor. However, Loki made a grave miscalculation. He didn't want the FF interfering, but he did not consider the interference of other heroes who may intercept the Team Brigade's distress call. In this case, Henry Pym, aka Ant-Man, and his partner in crime fighting, Janet Van Dyne, aka the Wasp, who summoned their army of flying ants to converge on the scene and to transport them there. The signal is also intercepted by our boy Anthony Stark, who, recognizing the urgency of the call, literally drops everything he's doing, promptly suits up as Iron Man, and he makes for the scene as well. Ultimately, the FF, for whom the message was originally intended, do eventually receive the signal. But since they're too busy with their own problems, and upon learning that other heroes are already on the case, they decide to just let them handle it. Wow. Lazy much? Sure enough, the group of heroes arrive at the Team Brigade's hideout in order to get more information on the situation, much to the absolute elation of the group of young boys. The group of heroes are glad to help however they can, with some silly background events for good measure, like the wasp thirsting over that gorgeous Thor, while Ant-Man berates her with some good old fashioned 1960s sexism. Back in his prison, Loki grumbles over the complication of all of these heroes showing up. He uses an illusion of the Hulk to get Thor's attention and to lure him away from the other heroes, which does work, 
but upon figuring out that the illusion is of mystical nature, Thor comes to the completely random but oddly logical conclusion that Loki must be responsible, and he returns to Asgard at once to confirm his suspicions. Iron Man is confused as to why Thor just suddenly ran off like that, but he does assure the teens that he and Ant-Man, and presumably the Wasp I hope, will find the Hulk who is hiding in a carnival as a giant clown disguised as a robot named Meccano. It's not a very good disguise, but it does the job. Somehow. But Ant-Man's ant army have tracked him down and caused a tunnel collapse under his feet. He's in public. That's dangerous. And this does nothing but anger him and cause him to do his Hulk thing, rage out, and blow his cover. As he is trying to escape, and causing all kinds of chaos in the process, who should step up to try and bring him back down than our golden-clad armored warrior, good old Shellhead himself, who chases down the Hulk and tries his darndest to deal with the situation on his own before the Hulk takes out his main power core, disabling his armor. Meanwhile, Thor attempts to intercede with Odin to allow him to visit Loki on the Isle of Science in order to get him to stop this madness, and Odin agrees, but also mentions, unprompted mind you, that he can't interfere with his son's feud. Okay buddy, I mean, no one asked, but... As Thor arrives at the Isle, he knows Loki must have a bunch of traps prepared for him, so he steals his metal and braves his way to the island, where he dukes it out with his brother. Loki, of course, pulls out all the stops, trickster that he is, until Thor finally gets the drop on him and drags him back to Earth to answer for his shenanigans. Meanwhile, Iron Man is over here holding down the fort and trying to hold his own against the Hulk. Heaven knows where the heck Ant-Man and Wasp have gone off to as they seem to have vanished completely. Things admittedly look a bit grim, until... Thor shows up for Loki to explain that the whole thing was manufactured and that the Hulk is innocent. However, Loki has one more trick up his sleeve, spontaneously transforming into a glowing radioactive form, again with the radiation, what the heck. But suddenly, the floor collapses under him and he falls into a lead chamber. Presumably, Ant-Man, after being MIA most of the story, has directed his army of ants to tunnel under Loki and drop him into the lead chamber before they even knew it was needed. Oh, and the wasp was there too. Yay. In any case, Loki is dealt with for now, and the four heroes, plus the Hulk, unanimously decide that they might be able to do some good by working together as a team. With the wasp, in a spur-of-the-moment instance, naming their team the Avengers, because it's colorful and dramatic. Surprisingly, for once, no one questions or undermines her suggestion. In fact, the guys all unanimously agree that the name rocks. Rule of cool and all. And Thor proclaims that their newly minted alliance will never be beaten. Bold assumption there, Thunderer. And thus, a bold new team has arrived on the scene. What wacky adventures await our group of ragtag heroes? We'll find out 
after this reflection section when we cover the next few issues. Gathering the Dream Team? This debut story of the Avengers as a team, if nothing else, definitely leaves an impression. There's a lot to take in here. The story is absolutely packed and it's a solid origin. Ironically enough, our merry band of heroes don't seem to work well as a team. This first encounter is a series of events that ultimately amount to, we just got lucky, or else that's how it comes across. It's almost as if it's an early warning sign of how dysfunctional this team will become. Though, to be honest, the fact that they are so dysfunctional is part of what makes the Avengers as a concept so fun to begin with. So much so that their big screen counterparts really play up the dysfunction to the nth degree. If you're reading along, you'll notice that they never actually really fight together, you know, as a team. They all pretty much do their own thing separately, without ever even communicating with one another. Thor figures out who the true culprit is and immediately warps off to Asgard without even so much as a, hey guys, I know who's really doing this, I'ma go get him. And the others are left to wonder where he's gone off to and why. Ant-Man and Wasp inexplicably disappear just as soon as the Hulk starts doing real damage and then inexplicably reappear with a convenient trap to capture Loki. Not to mention the Wasp was mostly sidelined in that classic 60s Marvel misogyny that's all too common in these books. And all this pretty much just leaves Iron Man, of all people, to fight the Hulk mostly on his own. He's the only one who takes a direct action to face the situation head on. While I appreciate the spotlight given to dear old Shellhead, it seems the start of a worrying trend. But, hey, maybe I'm being paranoid here. More likely than not, the most notable difference to newcomers is the team composition. Folks who only know of the Avengers from the MCU would be surprised to see Ant-Man and the Wasp as team founders, rather than Black Widow and Hawkeye, who we haven't even met yet in-universe. Don't worry, we will be meeting them both very soon. And that the Ant-Man and Wasp presented here are different than the versions you're used to on the big screen, as these are the original versions rather than the legacy heroes we see in the movies. Fun fact, we'll actually be meeting Scott Lang eventually as well, but that won't be for a good hot minute, so let's stick a pin in that one for now. Since it begs to be addressed, I can also imagine my movie-only peeps might just be wondering, where in the world is Captain America? Why does he not make a showing in this inaugural issue? The answer is because, believe it or not, dear listener, the good captain wasn't an original founder of the team. Your answers to where exactly he is will be coming later this episode, though, so sit tight, my friends, and all will be revealed. Thor's Secret Identity Right, I know this is an Iron Man show, but if you'll pardon the diversion for a moment, for the sake of my MCU-only listeners, I do want to take some time to talk at some odd length about the big, buff, flowing locked elephant in the room. At the dawn of the Marvel Age, Thor, the Norse god of thunder and storms, 
had a mortal secret identity. If that sounds absolutely asinine, that's because it is. But that's just how these heroes operated at the time. So I would feel remiss if I didn't at least give it a mention and provide a bit of explanation for those of y'all who aren't in the know. It's a wild story, so sit tight for a minute while we pivot over to some Thor lore. I'll be presenting the story as I know it from the most recent retcon slash retelling that I can recall at this point, as it has been changed and updated over the years since his original origin. If any of you out there are more well-versed on Marvel Thor lore than I am, then I implore you, dear listener, please correct me. <laughs> while I do occasionally dip into Thor from time to time, I'm not as confident in his lore and overall background as I am with our main protagonist, at least as far as this show is concerned. At any rate, gather round, my lovely listeners, and let us regale the tale of the Odinson. In his youth growing up in Asgard, Thor was a vain, arrogant, narcissistic prince who was being brought up to be king someday, and he knew it. Think... Kid Simba from Disney's The Lion King, but with a nastier attitude. The knowledge and confidence in his eventual ascension to Asgard's highest inflated the young prince's ego, making him restless, more than a bit of a show-off, and an overall pain in the rear end to deal with. After a brash attempt to show his might in protecting Asgard, Odin who was admittedly kind of a douche himself in the comics and was mercifully toned down in the movies, decided that he had had enough of his oldest son's bullheaded shenanigans, that Thor was nowhere near ready to rule, and that he would send him away and force him to learn humility, not allowing him back into Asgard until he did. To that end, Odin banished the heir to his throne to Midgard, aka Earth and stripped away his godly powers, creating a mortal host for his consciousness to embody until such a time he has learned his lesson enough to prove himself worthy to regain his power and his birthright as the eventual next ruler of Asgard. This host, evidently revealed to be a walking shadow that Odin had conjured out of thin air, is a physically handicapped medical student named Donald Blake was forced to walk with a cane due to an unspecified ailment limiting the use of one of his legs. Due to the time period in which this was written, and which the writers would be more familiar with, I had personally always assumed it was polio, but who really knows? In addition, Odin even gave the poor sap fake memories of a life and a family on Earth, so it would seem like he belonged somewhere, and so as not to make him too conspicuous. And... To top it all off, Odin disguised Thor's trusty hammer Mjolnir as an insignificant branch and hid it away in a place that, when Thor slash Blake was ready, he would be compelled to seek it out. He sealed the camouflaged weapon away in a cave in the mountains of Norway and placed upon it the infamous enchantment designed to only grant Thor his powers when he was well and truly deserving of it. Say it with me, everyone. Whosoever holds this hammer, if he be worthy, shall possess the power of Thor. Funnily enough, little did Odin know 
that this enchantment has a rather amusing little loophole that has allowed several individuals who are most assuredly not Thor to be able to wield Mjolnir to its full extent. Not to mention it's always been unclear how exactly worthiness is measured. But unfortunately, that's a little outside the scope of this podcast. By all accounts, Don Blake lived a rather innocuous life graduating from medical school and earning his MD, eventually opening his own practice to serve his community, also conspicuously in New York City. New York City seems to be effectively the nexus of the Marvel Universe, apparently. In time, he became so successful as to need a few extra hands, so he hired an assistant, a young nurse named Jane Boster, who would eventually become a doctor in her own right, and who harbored secret feelings for the now Dr. Blake. But she would never share them. And of course, Blake would also develop feelings for Jane, but kept them to himself, as he felt she would never accept him as a cripple. Way to put words in the lady's mouth, my guy. Just talk to her. And to an outsider, it must have looked like he might have thrown himself a little too much into his work to distract himself from his feelings. So much so that after a while, Nurse Foster would gently take him aside and say, Yo, boss, you're working too hard. You need to take some time off. So, he goes and does just that, taking a well-needed vacation and catching a flight to, surprise, surprise, Norway. Where, upon sightseeing the countryside, inadvertently comes across a reconnaissance vessel belonging to a group of aliens known as Cronins, a race of large rock-like beings and known conquerors. My MCU peeps who recognize Kor, played by actor-director Taika Waititi in Thor Ragnarok and Thor Love and Thunder, as one of these beings. In order to escape after being spotted, Blake turns and books it out of there as fast as a guy with a bum leg can but he loses his cane and gets himself stuck in a cave with no other way out except by a mouth that has long since been closed by a rock slide. As luck would have it, he spots a well-formed solid branch nearby and decides it will make a good substitute walking stick. But, since he's still trapped in this cave, in frustration, he smacks the cane into the cave wall, activating the dormant power of Mjolnir and reclaiming the form and powers of the mighty Thor. It goes without saying that, with his powers reclaimed, Thor busts out of the cave and frightens the Cronin scouts into submission, forcing them to retreat to their vessel to get the heck off this crazy rock called Earth, which they now believe is overrun with beings with incredible power. Little do they know, they're only half right. The history and lore surrounding the actual person of Dr. Don Blake is rather confusing and has been adjusted and retconned several times throughout the character's history, at one point being dismissed entirely and disappearing for long stretches at a time. He most recently reappeared, however, in Donny Cates' 2020 Thor run, having been established as a separate personality from Thor and hidden away in a magical thought space constructed by Odin until finally losing his dang mind, breaking out and going on a literal murderous rampage. But that's another story. 
During the early years, Thor would swap minds slash places with Blake by striking the hilt of Mjolnir on the ground, and vice versa, Blake could swap to Thor by striking his cane, which would then transform back into Mjolnir. While powered up by the charge, Thor was actually required to hold on to Mjolnir at all times, and if he ever lost his grip on it or was separated from it for a time, he only had about a minute to pick it back up or else be transformed back into lame Dr. Blake, which would obviously be bad a fight as Blake can't fight nearly as well as Thor. Until very recently, it was intentionally unclear whether Thor and Blake were two sides of the same coin, as in two personalities, but essentially the same person, or two separate individuals altogether, two minds sharing the same body. Think Yu-Gi-Oh! This is the interpretation I always subscribe to, but I suppose your mileage may vary. It also works for me because I'm a huge Yu-Gi-Oh! fangirl, so sue me. Thor's origin and beginnings are a far cry from the more modernized, secret identity-less version we've seen on the silver screen, played by Chris Hemsworth. I do understand the need to cut out some of the more convoluted fluff, and the character, in terms of his on-screen appearance, is probably better off for it. Though you can still find references to Blake in the form of easter eggs in other Marvel media, such as when he wears Blake's ID tag in the first Thor movie. Or, my favorite, the ill-fated and ill-regarded video game Marvel's Avengers, developed by Crystal Dynamics, published slash screwed over by Square Enix, and released on PC and last-gen and current-gen consoles in the midst of the pandemic of 2020. Regardless of the game's quality and reception, it still contains one of the best visual gags I've seen in a Marvel video game. One of Thor's costumes has him wearing a volunteer t-shirt, with a tattoo-styled angel wings on the back, and a name tag on the front that reads, Hello, my name is D. Blake. <laughs> it's beautiful. Mwah. All of that aside, if you feel so compelled, you can read Thor's origin as originally written in Journey into Mystery number 83, which nowadays can easily be found on Marvel Unlimited thanks to archival and preservation mentality being so important to preserve the history of these iconic characters. We now return to our regularly scheduled Iron Man. Bruce and Tony, Science Bros. Hulk and Iron Man, Bitter Rivals. I hate to break it to you movie-only fans, but regardless of the highly popular MCU Science Bros meme, Shellhead and Big Green do not get along in the comics. At all. Tony Stark and Bruce Banner do not start out as even remotely cordial with one another. Iron Man and the Hulk have had a pretty well-known on-again, off-again rivalry, and that pretty much starts here. During their fight, Iron Man exclaims that he really only just wants to help the Hulk and not hurt him, but that maybe the only solution is to take him down. In his own words, H21, Panel 1. Hulk, I want to help you, but maybe the police are right. Maybe you are a menace. You're too dangerous to run around loose. Ouch. Harsh words, my dude. I am in the Jade Giant will duke it out several times as we go forward before things eventually cool down between them. However, 
even though they are considered semi-cordial with one another nowadays, every once in a while, some naughty writer or so will create some beef, some arbitrary drama that ensures that there will always be some sort of enmity between them. For example, in more modern take, See the Iron Man Hulk tie-in story for the 2014 Marvel Mega Event Original Sin. The less I say about that for now, though, the better. Because, you know, otherwise I won't have anything to talk about if and when we eventually get there. Ultimately, as we see at the end of Avengers number 1, Hulk does agree to join the team. But, as we'll see very soon, he isn't exactly trusting of his new teammates. Nor they of him. Part 2. Some Assembly Required Issue Discussed Avengers Number 2 The Avengers Battle The Space Phantom Our second Avengers adventure shows exactly how dysfunctional this team really is. And we'll get a glimpse of the kind of broken bureaucracy the team functions under. The second issue is cover dated November 1963, and is released September 3rd, 1963, with credits as written by Stan Lee, pencils by Jack Kirby, inks by Paul Raymond, and lettering by Art Simek. Once again, the Marvel Fandom Wiki credits Stan Goldberg as providing the coloring for this issue but it's still not credited in the book itself, so take that as you will. We begin with our heroes in a meeting. Of all things, right? <laughs> Hulk, Thor, and Iron Man are waiting for Ant-Man to arrive so they can get started. And presumably Wasp as well, but due to 1960 misogyny, the person who named their team isn't even worth a mention, I guess. Hulk is restless, and Thor is irritated with what he sees as the Hulk just having an attitude. Ant-Man and Wasp do eventually show up, though, and Ant-Man explains how their powers work for the benefit of the audience who's not reading along in the Ant-Man stories. He shows how they're able to shrink and grow using special capsules. In other words, they start their heroic life as pill poppers. Huh. This meeting isn't really in service of much, other than, in Iron Man's words, getting to know one another, presumably so they can work better together knowing each other's personalities, strengths, and weaknesses. This is coming from the guy who isn't telling them that they are meeting in his home. The location is described as the Library of Anthony Stark, in what I am presuming is his Central Park townhouse that will ultimately become the team's first permanent headquarters and eventually gain the nickname Avengers Mansion. The villain of this piece is the Space Phantom, a being from Limbo, which is an actual dimensional realm within the Marvel Universe. This guy has the ability to switch places with any individual, taking on their likeness and banishing the individual whose likeness was stolen into Limbo, since while he has their form, the person in question cannot exist on the same plane. Terrifying in concept if the guy wasn't such a joke. Joke though he may be, he has the oddly specific goal of breaking up the Avengers so they won't get in the way of him doing whatever evil he wants to do. He takes on the appearance of a random passerby, 
banishing that person to limbo as he does, then as that person somehow sneaks his way into the Avengers headquarters as he reveals to the audience that he's been stalking the team for weeks and knows all sorts of things about them that they don't even know about each other. For our purposes, this means that he actually knows that Tony Stark is Iron Man, a fact that not even Shellhead's own teammates know at this point. Not that he ever gets the chance to do anything with this information, otherwise our boy would have a big problem on his hands. The Avengers of course notice his presence. The guy seemingly just walks right through the front door. And even though they don't know who's there, they're all savvy enough to realize that something is off. However, the Hulk, itching for a fight regardless, decides to take the bait and goes after the guy giving the disguised Space Phantom the opportunity to swap places with the Hulk to enact the next phase of his plan, which is to get the Avengers fighting amongst themselves. Which works. After a brief squabble where Iron Man takes a swing at him, the Hulk Phantom storms out to cause some more terror on the streets. But he's recognized by Rick Jones, who reminds him that he's the only one who can keep him in check and allow him to turn back into Don Blake. So, Don Blake is the Hulk now. Well, blow me away with that one, Stan. Phantom Hulk plays along for now, but since Jones is not integral to his plan, he finds some way to escape and return to causing mayhem, leaving young Jones holding the bag. Jones does exercise his one saving grace in the sequence, though. He knows the Hulk so well that when Phantom Hulk starts acting out of character, he immediately knows something's up and that this might not be the real Hulk at all. Get on you, Ricky. SP Hulk's mayhem includes stealing a Stark-designed missile system, which of course brings Shellhead back into the fight. But since he still thinks it's the actual Hulk, he goes into the fight thinking he's fighting the Hulk gone rogue with this dramatic declaration. I always thought we had made a mistake allowing you to join the Avengers. Now I'm sure of it. Oof. Brutal. Of course, this is all just playing into the Space Phantom's ploy to break up the team. However, he doesn't really have a hold on the Hulk's real power and doesn't know how much abuse the Hulk's tough-as-nails body can really take. So he's easily overwhelmed and frightened by the power of Iron Man's armor and bails from the fight, leaving the Hulk's form and swapping to that of an insect, which brings the real Hulk back from limbo. Now returned, the Hulk is stunned and amused to find himself now in a fight with Iron Man, which he happily obliges. After all, you challenge the Hulk to a fight, you're gonna get a fight. The perennial MIA members of the team, Wasp and Ant-Man, now mostly going by his supersized form Giant-Man, show up to help with the Wasp immediately figuring out that their true opponent is a shapeshifter of some description, since she's attacked by what looks like a common Wasp, and according to her, that shouldn't happen. I mean, sure, you say so, lady, but good on you anyway. As confirmation of her suspicions, both Wasp and Giant-Man witness the Space Phantom's transformation, and SP realizes the jig is up. But he doesn't necessarily care anymore. 
swapping places with the giant man right in front of them and continuing his rampage. Adding to the streak of the wasp actually being useful for a change, hallelujah. She flies off to fetch Dr. Don Blake, who is not the Hulk, but is actually connected to Thor. Because she remembers Thor telling them that if they ever needed him when he's not around, Dr. Blake would know how to reach him. She delivers her message to Blake, who immediately, after getting out of sight, of course, strikes his walking stick to summon the God of Thunder, and the two of them race back towards the scene of the fight. In the meantime, SP's been swapping between each of the heroes as they fight one another, causing all manner of confusion between them. And much to my personal chagrin, while we come back to them, he's swapped places with my poor Iron Man. The Wasp flies into the imposter Iron Man's glove controls and disables them, completing her hat trick for this issue. Way to go, Wasp. But the phony IM still got one working magnet glove that he uses to send Mjolnir flying back at Thor. I actually don't think this should happen, but the rules haven't quite been established yet, and Thor counters with a torrential downpour that rusts the faker's armor. SP swaps again, attempting to switch places with Thor this time. But since Thor is of Asgard and not Earth, all the Phantom accomplishes is trapping himself in limbo instead for the foreseeable future. I guess gods are outside the purview of his body-swapping abilities. Thus, the Space Phantom is dealt with. However, his plan unfortunately wasn't entirely a failure. The experience has caused the Hulk to become disillusioned with his place on the team, seeing how each one of them really feels about him, and he decides he doesn't need this crap and bails the heck out of Dodge, leaving the remaining Avengers painfully aware of how badly they've just screwed up, as they know that having the Hulk as an enemy is no bueno, and was the very scenario they were trying to avoid by allowing him on the team in the first place. You done goofed, Shellhead. The second outing ends with the team already facing a tremendous challenge, even though they're really just getting started. The story assumes off-panel that the Avengers have slowly been making a name for themselves, becoming known enough to attract the attention of ne'er-do-wells who want to break them up like the Beatles. We end with the Hulk taking this entire ordeal pretty badly, as he sees the reactions of fighting him and how they really feel about him and he'd rather not hang out with people who don't trust him and clearly don't want him around. And, as much as I hate to admit it, I can't help but feel it was mostly due to his turn against Iron Man, who says in no uncertain terms that it was a mistake to let the Hulk on the team. And when Giant Man even tries to break them up on page 14, panel 3, Iron Man tells him that Hulk's had this coming for a long time. Ouch. Again, bruh, that's way too harsh. <laughs> a couple panels later, when it's clear what the real danger is afoot, he even doubles down, even calling Big Green a brainless gargoyle. Seriously, my dude, what the hey? It's no wonder they're only two issues in and the Hulk already wants out. 
My word. The story also issues much more of what I had mentioned in the issue 1 breakdown of Hulk and Iron Man not really being on friendly terms with one another. They start off on rather rocky ground to begin with, and their conflict here does nothing to improve that situation. It's likely that the Space Phantom really just accelerated a conflict that may have been coming anyway. The clash of personality between these two is clear and plain to see, so even though I'm on his side for sure, I have to give my boy the lion's share of the blame for making the Hulk the number one enemy of the team. Sorry, Shellhead, but you done goofed, my man. You done goofed. Three cheers for the Wasp. Again, I know this is an Iron Man show, but while we're talking about the Avengers, I can't help but give some props to my girl the Wasp in this issue. She actually had an integral role to play in helping to stop the Space Phantom's rampage, and it's a real breath of fresh air compared to how Marvel usually treats their leading ladies during this era. It evidently was an anomaly, unfortunately, as it doesn't set any kind of precedent, and later stories would backslide real hard. But it's nice to see her at the center of the action here, getting stuff done for a change, instead of just being in the way, being an airhead or a liability, or just... The girl. Story writers, please take this note down. The girl is not a personality type. If you've written an ensemble cast of any kind, and your lone female character can only be categorized as the girl, you need to either seriously rework her to have a real personality and presence, or just take her out completely. Because I personally feel it will be better to not have a presence at all than to have a badly written caricature or stereotype that is no more than a token to check a box. It'll unfortunately be a long time before Janet Van Dyne can be salvaged by later writers, so we'll just have to be patient and in the meantime, take what we can get. Which is why I felt it necessary to point out the good here, because it's such an outlier. See, Janet is actually one of my favorite characters in the Marvel Universe, and she really doesn't get her due credit early on. Though, she actually does get to have some pretty fun interactions later down the line with both Tony and Iron Man, so look forward to that. And that's not even mentioning how she sadly gets the short end of the stick in the MCU. Why bother to cast an icon like Michelle Pfeiffer if she doesn't get to do anything? So... I'd like to give her some love when I can, when it's appropriate. Who knows? Maybe her being backseated in the MCU will be somewhat rectified in the upcoming Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, but somehow, I seriously doubt it. An update from the future. As of recording this episode, I've long since seen Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, and without getting into too many spoilers, Though I didn't have the same grievances that many others did, I actually thought it was a pretty serviceable film, I do have to confirm that it didn't really do much justice to Janet after her being sidelined for the entire story so far, with her being stuck in the quantum realm and then being snapped by Thanos. And most of her behavior in the film was so un-Janet-like that I felt I had to say something. She actually did get to participate in the action this time, but... I don't know if it's enough to make up for the poor treatment overall. I know for me, I 
can't say for anyone else, but for me, I'm going to have to say it wasn't. Even though I'm recording this episode post-release, I've chosen to leave the original line as I originally wrote it. Mostly for the irony and the laughs, but also mostly because I was right. We're going to move along now. Whatever happened to Bruce Banner? Another off-topic, but... I can't help but point out the hilarious continuity gaffe on page 8, episode 1, when Rick Jones tells the imposter Hulk that he's the only person who can help the Hulk turn back into Don Blake. I mean, what in the actual heck? If Don Blake is the Hulk, then what in the world ever happened to Bruce Banner? Of course, the answer is obvious that this is a flub and Stan just got the names mixed up. It's no wonder that soon after this, new writers will start coming on to all the other books. It's gotta be real hard to keep all that continuity straight by yourself. Still, I wish I could have told us when Don Blake stopped being Thor and became the Hulk instead. Of course, I laugh and joke about it. But it's even more hilarious in hindsight, given a very recent time of recording turn in Thor comics where Thor actually does become a Hulk. That is a long story for another time. And, bringing it back around full circle, since Iron Man actually plays a small but fairly important role in that story, perhaps I'll cover it someday. The Team Center This issue once again shows Iron Man in the center of the action. Even if the role he plays is more antagonistic this time and actually greatly contributes to making an enemy of the Hulk. Based on what we've learned about him as a character, if you've been paying any attention at all, it stands to reason that this is an error he'll bust his metal butt to correct at all costs. He's all too aware now that the Hulk is their most dangerous adversary, and with the Avengers unable to keep him in check, there's no telling what he might do. As much as we the readers can place some blame on him, Iron Man is probably the hardest on himself for allowing this unfortunate turn of events. Remember, Tony Stark's worst enemy, more often than not, is himself. This issue also shows a new ability not seen in the main story, that Iron Man can swap his gauntlet pieces out for extensions, such as the fist hammer he uses against the Space Phantom slash Hulk here. It seems an anomaly to point out, but I'll go ahead and add it to the powers tally, since I believe it can effectively act as a precursor to the armor becoming adjustable with off-the-cuff add-ons, perfected much later with the well-known modular armor during the 1990s, specifically Lynn Kaminsky's run. This run, by the way, is criminally underrated, in my honest opinion. You often hear people saying about how 90s comics stank to high heaven. And since I wasn't reading them at that age, I wouldn't know. Based on what I have read, though, within the short three years I've been reading Marvel comics, I can definitely see where that's generally true, especially where Iron Man is concerned. The less I say about that for now, the better. However, there's also some really, really badly overlooked stuff here that's actually really, really good such as Kaminsky's aforementioned run. Hopefully, we will get to cover it on this show as we make our way through Shellhead's history. With the Hulk now an enemy, it's only a matter of time before the Avengers have to face him again. That time, of course, 
in immediately next issue because heaven forbid we have time to get our bearings. However, Big Green's not gonna be alone this time. He's bringing along a begrudging ally, the enemy of my enemy, if you will. Part three, tag team from hell. Issue discussed, Avengers number three. The Avengers meet the Submariner. Oh boy, here comes trouble. And when I say trouble, I literally quite mean it. Trouble with a capital T. Anyone who's familiar with the Marvel Universe knows this all too well. The Hulk has teamed up with Namor, aka the Submariner. Needless to say, that was bad news bears for our heroes. Those of you who are only familiar with this world through the MCU have only just met Namor in Black Panther Wakanda Forever, which actually does an absolutely incredible job showing the kind of force Namor really is, with Teno Huerta's spot-on portrayal of the Prince of Atlantis, or rather, Talokan as it's known in the film. It's a very different take on him to be sure, but Yarnfin isn't effective in showing that he is nothing if not a force to be reckoned with. The spirit of the character is absolutely present in this portrayal. The guy does not play games. So it stands to reason before you even open the pages that the Avengers are in for the first real fight of their team career. Especially since at this point in time, he's already faced the Fantastic Four, ostensibly Marvel's A-team at this point, multiple times and giving them a run for their money. They've got their work cut out for them. If you didn't already know the history of the character, you'd never even guess that he was a holdover from the Golden Age, back when the company was known as Timely Comics, especially with how seamlessly he was integrated into the current Marvel Universe. The strategy worked so well that Marvel will try it again with another Golden Age icon, in the very next issue of Avengers we'll be discussing this episode. But I'm getting ahead of myself. For now, we'll be discussing issue 3, cover dated January 1964, with a release date of November 5th, 1963. This issue, at least the digital version that I'm reading in Avengers Epic Collection Volume 1, doesn't actually include the credits for some darn reason, so I'm Gonna have to rely on the Marvel fandom wiki being correct and hoping to heaven it is. According to the Marvel fandom wiki, this issue was written by Stan Lee, penciled by Jack Kirby, inked by Paul Raymond, colored by Stan Goldberg, and lettered by Sam Rosen. The only thing I'm actually going to point out on the cover, besides how dynamic it is with Hulk and Nam were breaking through a wall to get through our dysfunctional team of heroes, and that the Wasp is nowhere to be seen, except in the corner box, but does that really count? <laughs> is that Iron Man now dons the Mark II cat ear armor and is now in his iconic red and gold colors that we were just introduced to in the previous episode of this podcast. Hey, now we're all caught up. This is the reason that this bonus episode is placed where it is in our personal chronology, since the change happens only two short issues into the team's run and the next issue of Avengers that catches up to where we are now in Shawhead's own book. Now that we've gotten all that out of the way, 
Let's get to the story summary. We begin proper on page two. At another infamous Avengers meeting, and the entire team at this point are in attendance. And for once, all are in agreement of one crucial point of importance. They have to track down the Hulk before things get out of hand. In other words, we're pretty much picking up immediately where we left off last issue. Collectively, they are all aware that the Hulk is a danger to himself and others, and they know they have to do something about it, but aren't really sure what to do or how they're meant to accomplish this monumental task. However, Iron Man has a plan. He uses an image projector to holographically contact other heroes who might be able to help. Hmm, let's see how this goes. First, he reaches out to the Baxter building, to the Fantastic Four. Makes sense. At first, Ben Grimm, aka The Thing, answers, but he's got a date, so he ain't got time for this ish. Next, he gets in contact with Reed Richards, aka Mr. Fantastic, who says he'd like to help, but he's just too busy being Reed Richards. And again, typical 60s Marvel doesn't know how to write women, Susan Storm, aka The Invisible Woman, has a fashion show to attend, but she'll call if she sees the Hulk. Note that I'm not calling her the Invisible Girl, as she was known actually in this era. She's a grown-ass woman for crying out loud, and a hero in her own right, and we're gonna put some respect on her name here. Next, Iron Man reaches out to Spider-Man, who in typical fashion, snaps at him about having his own problems to deal with. Not that he ever asked for help, so why the heck is he complaining? It's fine. We all really know he's only here for the obligatory cameo due to his growing popularity in the real world. So it's whatever. <laughs> Moving on. Lastly, Iron Man tries to reach out to Xavier's school, to the X-Men. Iron Man implores them for their aid, and mentions their promise to help him out after the incident with the Angel. As a reminder to last episode, you recall he literally risked life and limb to help their teammate, and as a result, they outright promised they'd help him in return if he needed them. So he's here to call in that favor. Makes sense, right? Except, rather than making good on their promise, they instead choose to act like petty little snobs and pretty much tell him to go kick rocks. Wow. So much for keeping your word. Some heroes. Our boy takes in a stride, but if I was him, I'd be pissed. I mean, it's not like he's nobody at this point. People know who Iron Man is. He's got name recognition at this point. But sadly, <sighs> here starts the growing trend of the rest of the Marvel Universe treating poor old shellhead like dirt. You might feel like I'm overreacting, but I'm telling you, this is going to keep happening and it's not cool. Plus, Aside from my personal gripes, all of this just pretty much leaves the Avengers back at square one, with no leads on where and how to find the Hulk. Until Thor throws out the ludicrous idea of contacting Rick Jones, the one guy who absolutely would know where the Hulk is, to see if he's been in contact with him recently. <laughs> you, you couldn't come out with that one sooner, big guy? <laughs> Wasting time is not conducive to your goals here. In any case, 
Jones receives the message and sets out to track down the Hulk and finds him fishing out a large piece of machinery from a lake. Rick convinces the Hulk to go back to the hidden cave where they use a ray device of some description to turn the Hulk back into Dr. Bruce Banner. The young Jones puts the doctor to bed and stays watched by the room where he's locked in, blaming himself for the doctor becoming the Hulk in the first place. Which, yeah, kind of was his fault. But the gamma ray treatment from the machine wasn't strong enough and boom, the Hulk busts out of the cave and escapes. Forcing Rick Jones to just call the Avengers back to tell them he goofed up. The first one to receive this call is our boy Anthony, who declares that the Hulk must be stopped now and suits up as Iron Man, calling Ant-Man and the Wasp as he takes off after the Hulk. Soon, Dr. Blake gets the call and closes his office early so Thor can also join in and help. As the first one to leave, Iron Man is also first on the scene, and as such, is the first to get ambushed by the Hulk. The others arrive shortly, and I guess they try to help out. Either way, it all just amounts to the Hulk throwing another train at them and ultimately getting away. We see the Hulk escaping via a narrow water channel. Somehow, this tiny stream from the desert sends him clean out to sea, where he hitches a ride on a passing ship before jumping off and swimming ashore to a small outcropping where he meets Namor, the Submariner, who apparently had been manipulating things all along to lure the Hulk to him. Dun dun dun! He claims to have been waiting for him, but the Hulk is having none of his mess, as he is tired of looking at anyone who even remotely looks human. Namor does not take kindly to being insulted by who he sees as a lesser being, and the two throw down for a bit before Namor demonstrates his superiority in underwater combat. Then, finally, offers his proposal to team up in order to bring humanity to its knees. Maybe leave with that next time, yes, yeah, Subby? Unfortunately for Big Green, though, Namor's just gotten a first-hand glance at how much of a loose cannon the Hulk really is, and immediately starts mentally planning his eventual betrayal. Way to be a backstabber, my guy. Like I said, you do does not play games. Eventually, the Avengers learn that the Hulk and Namor have teamed up, and they collectively conclude that this is all kinds of bad, and this can't stand as there is no telling what kind of damage they can do as a unit. They track them down using an experimental undersea craft, created by Tony Stark, of course, and the ensuing fight lasts quite a few pages, but it ends pretty inconclusively. The Hulk is inadvertently forced to turn back into Bruce Banner, seemingly unprompted, leaving Namor to think the Hulk abandoned him. And he too decides to get out while the getting is good. The Avengers, apparently having enough respect for Namor as a worthy opponent, just let him go. However, the problem of apprehending the Hulk still remains unsolved. Dysfunction Junction Amusingly, thus far, the Avengers have proven pretty ineffective as a team. They don't have a good track record at this point at all. 
the adventures we've seen on the page all end with them pretty much failing spectacularly. Ant-Man slash Giant-Man and Wasp seem to disappear for long stretches during actual fights. The Wasp is apparently too thirsty for Thor to focus on serious issues, making Giant-Man snap at her to grow up on page 18. Then again, she does take great pleasure at seeing him jealous, so maybe that's the point. In any case, when she's not doing a notice me senpai with Giant-Man, she's barely even a participant in the fights. At one point, seemingly forgetting that she can fly, and she's knocked to the ground and almost trampled by the guys as they're charging at Namor. What the heck? Thor isn't any better, hardly being an active participant in dialogue other than to give a half-hearted agreement or some flowery pontification in Thor-speak trademark, and seem to be just as less of a factor in any world brawling, as it seems like the creative team have started to realize that Thor could end each of these squabbles with one hand behind his back, so they have to come up with ways to keep him out of fights as much as possible in order to keep the book interesting. That's the Superman dilemma for real. Any way you slice it, it doesn't seem like these seasoned heroes work well together. Alone, they each have faced many perils and emerged victorious, but as a group, they don't seem to quite have their act together. Not for lack of trying, either, and certainly not for lack of leadership. Hmm? What's that, I hear you say? There's no official leader yet. Well, yeah, sure, on paper, that's definitely meant to be the case. But in practice, as I reread these, I'm starting to see something quite different that admittedly I didn't catch the first time. Allow me to explain. The real leader of the Avengers. At a glance, looking back on the previous two issues, the team dysfunction might seem as though that's due to a definite lack of leadership as they have previously established that all major decisions are to be made democratically as a unit. But in practice, that isn't really the case. Far from it, in fact. Reading issues 2 and 3 back to back, if one is paying even the slightest bit of attention to the text, or if you've been picking up the hints I've been putting down since the issue 2 summary, then you'll hopefully see what I now see. It is painfully clear that the current de facto leader of the Avengers is Iron Man. That's right. The one who's been working the hardest to keep the group on track has been none other than our boy Showhead. This more than likely than not was not actually intended and is probably only personal interpretation, but you know, I gotta call it like I see it. Please indulge me for a moment here, dear listener, as I break down how I came to this conclusion. Iron Man has always been the first one on scene when called to action. He's the one who's calling and facilitating the meetings. Heck, they're even meeting at his house. He's the one who makes a point of their meetings being on a regular schedule, so they always know when to gather. During those stretches of the fights with Hulk in issues 2 and 3 when Thor, Giant Man, and Wasp all eventually go AWOL and are nowhere to be seen, it's Iron Man who's shown alone, biting his metal butt off and holding the line. He's the one who takes responsibility in getting the team together and getting them where they need to be in the instances where they're able to travel together. 
Like I mentioned, even the submersible they used to go out to sea to find the Hulk and Namor was created by Tony Stark. He's even the one who took the first step in reaching out for help tracking down the Hulk after they lost track of him. Even though everyone he reached out to shot him down and treated him as little more than a nuisance, at least he tried. Well, that's an understatement. In all honesty, they treated him like crud. The nicest way I can put it is that they were jerks. They were just plain rude. Of course he took it in stride, but if I was treated so coldly by people who were supposed to be my peers, I'd be more than a bit peeved. So much so that I might not think too highly of them as people, let alone as heroes. Good on him for being the bigger individual here, because I sure wouldn't be. I'm more petty than that, and I know it. That's why, regardless of what people say or think, I truly believe he's a real hero. On that note... The X-Jerks Part 2 Electric Boogaloo I know I already had my little rant about how cold and heartless the X-Men were in particular and smacking down Shellhead's golfer aid. You know, it's so irritating that I'm not quite done complaining about it yet. So please bear with me, y'all. Please bear with me. As dismissive as Richards and Spidey were, I'm much harsher on these guys in particular, especially because of their rudeness in shooting down Iron Man and ignoring his request for aid essentially equates to them straight up reneging on their promise to assist when called after he risked his life to save the angel back in TOS number 49. I mean, shoot. Professor Charles Xavier himself expressed his gratitude and even said, I shall repay you someday. I promise you that. Only to metaphorically shut the door in his face in this very issue as soon as he does ask for help. I guess Professor X's promise aren't worth jack diddly if he breaks them this easily. I don't really think too highly of those who so easily break their promises. Is Professor X always this much of a jerk? The little I know of early X-Men, it certainly seems so, so maybe this is perfectly in character. It's still infuriating nonetheless, but whatever. They're so popular now, even though they were worth squat back then, literally. I mean, the book was cancelled only after a few short years. And people only care even the tiniest iota about Iron Man because of the MCU. So, I guess it's just whatever, right? If anyone out there happens to know if and when the X-Men ever make good on their promise to Shellhead, please let me know. I would love to hear about it. But I'm not confident in that ever being a thing. So it wouldn't surprise me if it never comes back up. It certainly doesn't in Shellhead's book, I can tell you that for a fact. And since the X-Men are notoriously isolated from the rest of the Marvel Universe as a whole, they probably never even think of it again. Too busy taking care of their own to even bother. Okay, so I did go on a little bit of a tangent there admittedly, and I do so apologize for that. The point here I'm trying to make is that it definitely seems like Shellhead's been pulling more than his own weight here, and can't help but feel the others aren't really taking it too seriously. Imagine how hard it would be for him if things had gone a bit differently and the others, instead of answering our boy's call to action, just decided, nah, we're good. We don't want to do this team thing anymore. 
Luckily, we don't have to imagine it. We actually have that exact story told from another world in another book. What if number three? In the 1970s, Marvel Comics began publishing a little-known series known simply as What If? And it's exactly what it says on the tin. Narrated by Uatu the Watcher, it reimagines several Marvel stories from the past and retells them as stories that happened on other Earths throughout the Marvel multiverse, with the slightest change causing the story to shift in a different direction, in some cases quite drastically, and usually with pretty dire consequences. The result is an alternate version of the same events, but with a different conclusion, told solely to answer the titular singular question of But what if though? As you might be aware, this is the same premise that the What If Disney Plus series was based on. The What If comic series has famously ended up answering a few rather interesting questions, such as what if Spider-Man really did join the Fantastic Four? Or what if the Fantastic Four had different powers? In some cases, the stories and ideas presented in them were just too compelling to overlook and would eventually find their way into the main series continuity. One such example being, what if Jane Foster were worthy of Mjolnir and became the mighty Thor? Sound familiar? I briefly mentioned what if before in a previous episode, but didn't go into it too much detail as it wasn't entirely relevant. In this episode, however, it is absolutely relevant. What if number three retells Avengers number three with the slight change of exactly what I just detailed concluding the previous subsection? The Avengers collectively deciding to throw in the towel and call it quits with one very notable exception. Giant Man and Wasp declare that the Hulk is too big a threat, and they decide that they're just done with this whole hero thing. Spontaneously, at the same time, Thor decides that the affairs of lowly mortals no longer concern him, and he just pisses off back to Asgard. <laughs> the end result is all three bailing out, essentially breaking up the team, and leaving Iron Man holding the bag as the lone Avenger who still believes in the cause. He knows darn well he can't stop the Hulk alone, however, and he's going to do whatever he has to to rein the big guy in. And if you've been following our journey from the beginning, you know that if it's anything we have learned about Anthony Edward Iron Man Stark, it's that he is a reckless thrill-seeker with a self-destructive personality whose entire life's mission as a hero is to make amends for his own failures. Adds that the fact that he thoroughly believes in the cause, and of bringing down the Hulk since the Avengers are the ones who let him get away in the first place, and you have someone who is so desperate to prove that the team is viable and to correct this major failure that he knows he is partially responsible for, that he tries everything he can to keep the Avengers together and accomplish the task of taking care of the Hulk situation no matter the cost. He is on a mission and he is going to do whatever it takes to get the job done. I'm not actually going to spoil the ending here. It's actually a pretty good read 
And I might do a point one episode on it later if that's something y'all want to see. But if you want to go ahead and read it for yourself, no, it's on Marvel Unlimited. I'm not going to stop you. By all means, please do and let me know what you thought. So, yeah. Looks like Shellhead's bending over his head trying to keep this team together, huh? Looks like he needs to do one of two things. Either A, get some help, or B, pass the buck. In our final story for this special episode, it looks like he may well just get his wish. Remember that other Golden Age icon I mentioned earlier? Well, as it turns out, Four, Return of a Living Legend. Issue discussed, Avengers number four. Captain America joins the Avengers. Well, talk about a huge spoiler. The big twist of the issue is blown before you even open the dang book. It's right on the cover. That's right, folks. After testing the waters, pun not intended, with several fakeouts and imposters in previous stories, such as one infamous Human Torch story in the Strange Tales anthology, this issue of Avengers sees the true Silver Age return of this star-spangled man with the plan himself, Stephen Grant Rogers, aka Captain America. At the risk of retreading a point I made in my pilot episode, while I won't deign to speak for all MCU fans, I will say that for me personally, I was thoroughly unconvinced this character would work outside of the confines of a goofy jingoistic propaganda tool. Until I was shown otherwise, like Chris Evans' iconic portrayal of Steve Rogers in Captain America The First Avenger, which I feel is a sorely underrated film even within the MCU. I'm also a sucker for period pieces, as you may recall, when I briefly mentioned my love for X-Men First Class in the previous episode of this show where we discussed Tales of Suspense number 49, despite me not really caring that much about the X-Men. So, take this with a grain of salt, if you will. However, the Marvel bullpen at the time must have seen something about this character they thought made him fit right in with their ever-growing stable of heroes. Otherwise, they wouldn't have made the effort to revive him and would have just left him in the Golden Age as the relic he was. And evidently, it would seem they were correct. And this experiment was successful for a second time, as comic readers clearly experienced something that I had to watch a movie to see. As a result of the evident success of this introduction, though the Sentinel of Liberty would start out as a relic, he wouldn't remain so for very long. Avengers number 4 is credited as being written by Stan Lee and penciled by Jack Kirby, with inks by George Russo's, colors by Stan Goldberg, and lettering by Art Simek. Only Stan Lee, Kirby, and Simek are actually credited in the book. The remaining credits, courtesy of the Marvel Fandom Wiki, may be up to scrutiny, as usual, but we'll go with it for now, as we move on to the summary summary for this landmark issue. The story once again picks up pretty much immediately after the end of the last one, with Namor bailing out of the fight against the Avengers after having seemingly been stood up by the Hulk. 
He dives into the ocean and, in his element, swims as far away as possible as quickly as possible, ending up in the icy northern seas of the Arctic Circle. After frightening a group of unfortunate racial stereotypes of Arctic-dwelling native peoples, he grabs their frozen block of an idol and smashes it into the ice as he throws a veritable temper tantrum. The remains of this block of ice float away, revealing that a person was sealed away inside that icy prison. Are they alive? Well, I think we all know the answer, don't we? After what was presumably days of attempting to track him down, the Avengers arrive in the general vicinity of where Namor likely was when they spot the figure in the water, still frozen in perfect suspended animation. And since they aren't heartless, no offense to dear Shellhead who literally has holes in his heart, they decide to bring them on board. The figure is wrapped in tattered rags, but a colorful uniform shows through the worn fabric and the Wasp recognizes the figure right away, with Iron Man confirming her observation. This frozen figure, dressed in red, white, and blue, is none other than Captain America. What's more, two for two, the Wasp is also the first to recognize that, despite literally being on ice, he's still alive. Almost on cue, the captain recovers consciousness and immediately goes into shock, screaming for his old World War II partner Bucky and trying to attack his rescuers, who managed to calm him down long enough to inform him that he's been frozen for decades and that the war was won long ago. Also, for some reason, even though it's so obvious who he is, only the original super soldier could survive being frozen for that long, they still challenge him to prove himself. Uh, really, guys? <laughs> In any case, they soon readily accept that he's the genuine article after seeing his skillful demonstration. After which, Cap recalls the last thing he remembers as we are presented with a one-page blurb that will become built upon over time as his Silver Age origin. Captain America and his young ward, James Buchanan Bucky Barnes, trying to stop an enemy drone. Cap being thrown from the drone and into the sea as it explodes, with Bucky presumably perishing in the process. It will cause him no small amount of angst in the years to come. Just imagine what a kick in the teeth it'd be if all Cap were to somehow, someday beyond all possibility, discover that Bucky isn't really dead. Of course, that's impossible. No one could survive that explosion. Still, wouldn't that be something? Upon returning to New York City, the initial group of Avengers disembark from their craft, only to be ambushed by a group of press with cameras. However, one of the flashes is not from a camera bulb at all. Instead, an intruder in disguise with this bizarre weapon that turns the founding Avengers into stone. After some time, Cap finally emerges from the craft after gathering himself, but the crowd having been previously frightened away by the preceding chaos, has dispersed, and the only thing in sight are these very accurate and well-crafted statues of the Avengers. As he gets lost in modern-day New York, and people gasp and cry upon recognizing him, Cap somehow manages to book himself a hotel room, even though he was just revived and has no cash. And he decides to get some rest, 
but it turns out he's been followed. Rick Jones has been tracking him and knows that he knows something about the Avengers' disappearance. But Kappa's just hung up over how much young Jones apparently looks like Bucky. This hang-up is going to get real old real fast, isn't it? Cap gets himself in order and follows Jones to a fellow Teen Brigade's home, who is unnamed but apparently has a photographer in the family since they have their own dark room. Rick shows Cap the photos he managed to get and one of the press people in the photo has a camera that looks less like a camera and more like a weapon. And he's decided to put out notice to anyone in the brigade who might have seen the guy. Waste of time, apparently, as during their search, Cap just sees the guy through an open window and goes all Leroy Jenkins on him, busting through to tackle the fake reporter and alerting the armed mercenaries next door who all come in guns blazing. However, Cap proves that his trademark shield isn't just for show, and he quickly dispatches these men before turning back to the culprit unmasking him and learning that his true identity is that of a member of an alien race known as Dabari, unnamed here but revealed in a later story, who crash-landed on Earth centuries ago while exploring the galaxy, and due to his unwieldy hairstyle and weapon's ability to turn people into stone, early mythology may have inspired the myth of Medusa. This creature breaks under Cap's interrogation and reveals that Namor hired him to turn the Avengers into stone. What a sore loser he is that he couldn't even face him directly and had to hire a stooge to do his dirty work for him. Luckily for us all, the Dabari's Raygun can also de-stonify people, so Cap has him restore the Avengers to normal. In exchange, they agree to retrieve the Dabari ship, which lies dormant and trapped beneath the sea, so that he may at long last return home. However, their attempt to race the ship is interrupted. Namor has returned for one more showdown, this time with a squad of Atlantean soldiers to back him up. Giant Man and Cap are blown away by the initial assault, once again leaving Iron Man standing alone for a whole page to fight for his life. Wasp shrinks down and messes with Namor enough to distract him while Thor takes out Namor's backup single-handedly. Cap watches all of this from a distance, sizing the team up as they fight Namor, and their bravery impresses him enough to compel him to jump back into the fray just in time to stop Namor and his goons from pulling a sudden hostage negotiation. With? Hard to tell, actually. I guess it's Rick Jones. I wasn't aware he was still with the group. Admittedly, there's some wonky continuity going on with this sequence, so things are a little muddled. Suddenly, their battle causes the little rock outcropping they were fighting on to collapse into the sea, allowing Namor to make a clean getaway, but also freeing the alien ship in the process and allowing the poor guy to finally return home at long last. The Avengers aren't really sure what all just transpired, and admittedly, as mentioned before, it is kind of a cluster. Nor are they sure if the result could be really considered a victory or not. But one thing they are sure of, by unanimous agreement, is that they want Captain America to officially join the team. The captain accepts, 
while Rick Jones ponders about what the Hulk would think when he learns that he was so easily replaced. This reader wonders if he would even care, since he's the one who left the team to begin with. Royal Tenacity If it's anything we know about Namor from these two stories, it's that he's kind of a sore loser, yeah? It seems he'll stop at nothing to win, even if he has to manipulate the situation by stacking the deck against his opponent. The lengths to which he goes to defeat the Avengers is well beyond reasonable, and it won't be the last time he tries to get back at them either. He doesn't have the same kind of animosity towards the Avengers that he does for the FF. It's a whole different kind of hatred, but it's there all the same. Fittingly enough, there's one specific Avenger that he would ultimately develop a rather interesting history of showdowns with. Since you're listening to this podcast, you can easily guess who, but I'll give you three guesses anyway. That's right, folks. As it turns out, Namor and Iron Man will develop somewhat of a personal rivalry. Jihad and Subby actually have some pretty epic duels with each other, the first of which is actually coming up pretty soon, so look forward to that. A Fateful First Encounter It's fitting that next to the Wasp, it was Iron Man who immediately recognizes Captain America, and was the first to throw out the idea of Cap joining the team at the end of the issue. Our boy has very little to do this turn, due to spending much of the issue as Stone Man instead of Iron Man, but even so, he's still the most prominent figure in the final fight against Namor and his cronies, and even solos Namor long enough for his teammates who got knocked off their feet to get back up and finally give him some help. And I would be remiss if I didn't point out the obvious reason why I've included the story in our journey here. The first meeting between Iron Man and Captain America is integral to the stories and development of both characters going forward. They are perfect strangers now, but given time, these two would develop a very important connection with one another. If you followed Cap and Tony's journey in the MCU, you know that they start off hating each other's guts and become good friends before Cap breaks Tony's trust and sides with freaking Bucky in Captain America Civil War. Yes. His full name in my mind is freaking Bucky. And yes, I blame Cap for that tire fiasco. And no, I won't get into that now. Ask for the point one episode later if you really want to know. In the Marvel Comics continuity, they don't start off quite as antagonistic. For one, they won't even know each other's civilian identities for some time. Before then, they are just teammates with a kind of mutual respect for one another. It isn't until they become familiar with each other as people, not just as Avengers, that they start to develop a kind of friendship. Though one that admittedly has more downs than ups, as their ideological differences often get in the way and cause some wide rifts that take a while to heal. Look forward to Armor Wars and Galactic Storm, and you'll see what I mean. However, even before then, there were a couple of times where Tony was in a dire situation and more than anything just needed someone in his corner to help him get back up. And Steve instead would choose to throw him under the bus. It might not look that way to a casual reader, but when we get to that point, 
I hope I can illustrate why I see it that way. I know that most people with even a passing familiarity with the Marvel continuity think that the big break in their friendship came from the comics version of the Civil War storyline. But if you stick with me long enough, the more we analyze Tony's interactions with Steve going forward, you'll see that the rifts were there long before then, and Civil War was just the break that caused the whole thing to come tumbling down. For now, though, Cap and Shellhead have only just met, and as such, they don't have as much of a personal connection at all. Nonetheless, this first meeting is integral to the histories of both characters, and they are each a key figure in each other's stories. So, we'll be talking about Cap again here soon. In all honesty, probably sooner than you think. Following up on a Who's a Founder discussion from very early in this episode, I will go ahead now and report that following Cap's joining the team, he will eventually be granted honorary founder status as the Hulk's apparent replacement. Of course, this won't always serve him well when he inevitably has disagreements with any of the actual founders. Iron Man in particular. Wait till we get to that bit of goodness. Continuity errors. One thing about these early Marvel comics is that there are all sorts of strange continuity errors in the art that the writing feels the need to fill in with the most convoluted explanations or else overlook it entirely. In this story, it seems Rick Jones plays the part of the Incredible Disappearing Man. He tracks Cap down after seemingly following him from the dock. He wasn't with the Avengers at the end of number 3 when they went after the Hulk, so he wasn't on their craft, else he would have been turned to stone alongside them. After he relays his call for assistance, and Cap finishes freaking out about his apparent similarities to his former partner Bucky, Cap is shown leaving his hotel room alone to seek out the culprit, finding the Dabari castaway and his gang of thugs in a nearby apartment room where he interrogates him about who hired him and how to restore the Avengers to normal. During all this, Jones is nowhere to be seen, until he suddenly reappears again as a hostage with Namor's guards. Where was he during all of the fighting? There was no indication he had accompanied Cap at all. These are the kinds of odd continuity blips that make these old Marvel comics kind of hard to follow sometimes, next to the sheer amount of words on the page. I'm a big reader, dear listeners, so reading a lot of words doesn't bother me, but when they're all crammed together in such a small amount of space, and the words are printed so tiny as a result, well, that's when me and my bad eyesight are going to have a hard time keeping up. But maybe it's not a problem for you. I realize this is very much a me problem, but, well, if you've been listening this long, you know the host of this podcast is very opinionated, and the presentation on the subject matter is not at all objective and never claimed to be. I've very much been presenting my own subjective thoughts and feelings here, sprinkled in with the facts as presented. If you made it this far and still expected the opposite, and this knowledge is a deal breaker, especially after the previous two episodes, then I'm sorry to see you go, and I'll miss you. But I really hope you'll stay. Your support is greatly appreciated. Thank you all very much for joining me for this giant-sized bonus episode chronicling Iron Man's first outings with a team as a founding member of the Avengers. 
I hope you enjoyed this extended look at the first few wacky adventures of Earth's Mightiest Heroes. This, along with TOS number 49, cements Iron Man's place within the world of the Marvel canon as a whole, and we can expect to see him in many more team-ups with his fellow heroes, and even duke it out with a few of them as well. Please join us next time for Episode 8, when we return to Shellhead's own mag and meet arguably his greatest and most formidable adversary. Who is this cunning and powerful new enemy? You'll just have to tune in and find out. In the meantime, please follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And tell your family, friends, or whoever you think may be interested. Remember, sharing is caring. A special shout out to all of my listeners wherever you are in the world. Know that I see you and I appreciate you very much. As always, the intro and outro theme is Breakdown by Kevin McLeod. Until next time, my name is Marissa, and you've been listening to the Shining Armor Podcast, the show hosted by a comic book newbie who likes Marvel comics and just wants to talk about Iron Man. Stay safe and be good, y'all.